Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us to understand your word. Father, we're coming to a tricky passage as we look at chapters 2 and 3. Father, help us by your Holy Spirit to understand what the Spirit says to the churches. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Video killed the radio star. Uh, so said the Buggles in 1979 and then again in 1980 when they had another hit with the same song. But nowadays, Google has killed the family doctor. What I mean by that is nowadays, we don't go to our GP first, do we? We go to Google. There are hundreds, if not thousands of websites where you can sort of go in, you put in your symptoms, you sort of type it into a box, and then it will tell you what's wrong with you. It's great. It's sort of the norm now, isn't it? We sort of go there first whenever we've got a problem. I went to the doctors a few years ago before the pandemic with a, with a problem. I told him my symptoms. And his first question was, what do you think's wrong with you? Have you Googled it? I thought, wow, okay. That's, that's how it works now. Uh, this must be the norm now. We must have so many people come in with already an idea of what is happening. Um, actually, as I spoke to him and explained my symptoms, I imagine my shock when he then went on his computer and Googled my symptoms right in front of me. Uh, it was a rather strange experience, but it seems that Google has now killed the family doctor. We all expected to do self-diagnosis now. That's what we're supposed to do. And as we go through this passage, it will require some of that. Not the Googling, though you might want to Google it later. But it will require some self-diagnosis. As we look at the passage, actually what it invites us to do is look seriously at ourselves. As we go through these seven churches, it will be so easy to point the finger. We'll sort of go, oh, we know what that person's like, we know what that church is like. But actually what God wants us to do here is point the finger at ourselves. We're supposed to self-diagnose, we want to look at ourselves first and foremost. So before we get into the nitty gritty of these lamps, we need to understand roughly what we're talking about here. This is revelation made slightly less difficult if you weren't here last week. We go. So understanding the lampstands. As we come to the seven churches here, there are two big misunderstandings that we need to avoid. The first one makes it all about the past. So there is a school of thought that says Revelation speaks exclusively to the time when it was written. So as we read about these churches, when we read about Sardis, it's just about Sardis, back then and there. When we read about Ephesus, it's just about Ephesus, back then and there. But in a book so packed with symbolism, it would be strange if that's the way that it worked. It would be strange if that's all it was, just back then and there. And to be fair, we don't even read the other letters in the New Testament like that, do we? So when we read Ephesians, we expect it to speak to us now. So strange then that the letter to the Ephesians in uh, the book of Revelation wouldn't speak to us now. Neither, though, are they a chronological plan of history. That's the other big mistake that we can make. There is a popular school of thought that says that the seven letters are sort of seven stages through church history. Starting with Ephesus and then in the very last days, Laodicea. And it's actually quite a popular view uh, in a lot of circles in the church at the moment. But let me give you three reasons why that's not a good way to look at it. The first reason is that we're forever obliged to be in Laodicea. We're forever obliged to be in the last church that it lists. Right from when this view was first put forward, the theologians who did it said that we were in Laodicea. And they have been doing for hundreds of years, been saying that we're right at the end. 
that's the one that we had read out earlier that was neither hot nor cold, and Jesus threatens to spit them out of his mouth. However, many centuries have gone by since that was suggested, and the churches before them are sort of divvied up in stages, and the stages have had to get sort of longer as we've gone along, because we have to end in Laodicea. Why? Because rightly we're taught in the Bible to expect that Jesus could return any day. We're taught to expect him to come like a thief in the night, we don't know when he's coming. So if we say we're in an earlier church than Laodicea, it doesn't make any sense, does it, to say that Jesus could come back right now. So whatever uh, hour, whatever day we're in, we're obliged to be in Laodicea. No one has ever said that the church is in the age of Sardis or Philadelphia, even though now we look back and say that they were. Every age, it seems, seems to think that it's lukewarm. That seems to be something that we find. Even when we look back and take it in the broad view of history, there were times that were actually quite hot. At the time, they thought they were lukewarm, which is telling, isn't it? But that is one of the things that makes me suspect that this isn't the right way to look at it, because we always have to be in the Odyssea. The second reason why it doesn't work so well is all the churches that we read here in the book of Revelation should be Ephesus. They should be Ephesus churches. If these churches sum up uh, all the ages, then actually all of these churches were there at the beginning. Nobody argues that these aren't real churches with these real problems. But yet you have... um, uh, ones that haven't lost their first love. You've got ones that hate groups that the Ephesians loved and love groups that the Ephesians hated. It doesn't sort of match up with what we see. But if Ephesus describes the general state of the churches at the time, we'd expect them all to sound like Ephesus, wouldn't we? We'd expect that to be the theme all the way through, but they don't. So if anything, it shows us that even here at the beginning, there was a diversity in the way that the church was. And then thirdly, it makes no sense of what's going on in the rest of the world. Schemes that make this all about the church generally only make it about the church in the West, not in the church globally. So, for example, it might be that there are a large number of Laodicea-like churches in the UK at the moment, neither hot nor cold, but that doesn't mean that that's the case everywhere. That doesn't mean that we can make the generalisation about Christ's global church just from our view in one country. So imagine I go to Nigeria with this chronological approach in mind. In Nigeria this week, there's been a Christian student who was stoned to death and her body burned after she was accused of blasphemy against Mohammed. Shops owned by Christians in the town were then looted and Christians were attacked after the authorities actually arrested somebody for doing it. If I go to the church in that area and say, the Lord Jesus has a message for you. I know the age we live in. This is the message for the church now. And I read to them Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you are either hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I spit you out of my mouth. Is that the message to the church in Nigeria at the moment? Or what if I went to a church in North Korea? Or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia? Interestingly, I had that before in my notes before we were seeing those guys this morning. Or North Sudan? What if I read it in Brazil? or in parts of Africa, or to the Iranian church, where Christianity is actually growing incredibly, even in the face of opposition. It actually seems to make no sense to have say, well, this is the message for this age. So I don't think the chronological approach works. It's better to think of these churches as typical churches in our age in general. We find all of them across the whole of the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. 
And as we said, in the province of Asia, there were already different churches, even though they were close together, facing different situations. It was like that then, and it's like that now. Seven, then, stands for completeness. We started to see that last week. Together, they represent the whole of church across the whole of this time. Not one at a time, but all at once. But that means, as we think about that self-diagnosis question, we need to ask ourselves two soul-searching questions. The first one is, as a church, which one are we most like? What does the Spirit have to say to us as a church as we go through this? And then second, what church am I most like? Maybe I feel like I'm a going-for-it church, like Smyrna, but inside I feel like a Laodicean. Neither hot nor cold. Or an Ephesian. I've lost my first love. This should penetrate my heart, our hearts as individuals too, as we go through this. Going to one church or another doesn't mean that I share the heartbeats of that church, for good or for bad. So as we read through, we need to think about our own situation, where we are. So what we're going to do now is a brief tour, it will have to be brief, of the churches and see what the Spirit has to say to each one. There are not loads of extra verses this week, like there were last week, but we do have seven churches to get through, so it's going to be quite a whistle-stop tour. So secondly, a brief tour. We saw last time that these churches were all real churches across uh, Asia. Uh, They're in modern-day Turkey. The letters are written in order, going clockwise from Ephesians, and all of the letters that we have basically follow the same pattern. There's something about Jesus who's speaking, there's something good about them, there's something bad about them, there's some action to take, a warning, an encouragement, and then he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter we read in the seven follows that basic same pattern with a, a few variations. So it makes them look really easy to compare. So let's have a brief look. So first, Ephesus. This is verses one to seven. Let me read them to you again. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." Jesus here is pictured from chapter 1 as that high priest walking among the lampstands, tending to the lampstands, keeping them alight. Jesus can see what's going on in the church. He can see their work, their toil, their endurance. He can see the way that they've been discerning and rejected false apostles who are out to trick them. They also hate the Nicolaitans. We'll come back to them when we meet them a bit more in Pergamon. But we see a church that is doctrinally and morally pure... But they've lost their love. Now probably in context, it's the love that they have for one another. Though for John, the love that we have for one another is a visible sign of our love for God. 
They're busy doing works of righteousness. They love doctrinal purity. Great. They love moral purity. Great. But they don't love each other. They're busy. They're moral. But they're loveless. And Jesus threatens them with some of the strongest words in the letter. He threatens to take their lampstand away. He threatens to take the church away. There won't be a church there anymore. If you don't repent and go back to loving one another like you did once, I'll come and end the church in Ephesus. But if they repent, Christ offers them the tree of life, eternal life in the garden, in the new creation. That's what the Spirit has to say to Ephesus. That's roughly what's going on there. Busy, pure, but loveless. Schmerner, on the other hand, is a whole other kettle of fish. Have a look at verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So in Smyrna, they're having a tough time. Christ is presented as the eternal one who died and came back to life. He faced persecution and came out the other side. They're being slandered by a non-believing Jewish community in their area. But notice, Christ has nothing bad to say about this church. There's no warning other than to tell them to hold fast and not fear as more testing is coming. Ten days there to face. That ten in the book of Revelation means some. So it's a bit like the word a dozen, the the way that we use it. The more tens, the bigger. So they've got some bad days ahead, but it's not forever. And if they keep going, even to death, God will grant them the crown of life. The crown of life from the one who rose to life. And they won't be hurt by the second death, which refers to the eternal torment we read about in chapter 20. Such Smyrna. What about Pergamum? Have a look at verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed amongst you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, so that also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum is continuing, but compromised. Pergamum was a leading religious centre of the area. It was sort of the Canterbury of Asia Minor. But it was a centre there for all sorts of different faiths. There was a big centre for emperor worship there, but it also had a large altar situated on a hill overlooking the city to the god Zeus. 
It's not essential to the meaning of the passage, but that's probably what it's talking about by Satan's throne upon the hill. Also remember, in those days, gods and idol worship was often linked with relations with temple women. That will help us understand it as we go through. They had their folk who stood against the tide of immorality in the city, who witnessed to Jesus and have paid the ultimate price. Antipas there is mentioned as a faithful witness, the same phrase that's used for Jesus in chapter 1. And that's good. The bad is, though, that some of them are following false teaching, causing people to stumble. Most people link it there with the Nicolaitan heresy. It has something to do with idolatry and food, and something to do with sexual immorality. It's likely to do with the meals and festivals that they held there, often trading guilds, would have sort of meals that you had to go to. Think of your sort of office Christmas party, but you sort of had to go there as part of uh, different times in the year. They would come, they would eat, they would worship that particular god of their trade, and they would often sleep with some of the girls from that temple. And it seems that some people would say, no, it's okay, we're free in Christ, we can do what we like. We're freed from all those things. But Jesus tells them simply to repent. Turn around, stop it. Have a change of heart, a change of mind. Otherwise, Jesus will no longer be for them, but will come against them with a two-edged sword that comes from his mouth. If they do change, though, Christ is going to feed them hidden manna. They won't need to go to those feasts, because Jesus will feed them. He'll give them a ticket to the festival. A white stone was used as a ticket to get into those feasts. He'll protect them from curses. In the ancient world, they believed that names have power over people. I trained as a teacher, and I know if you know someone's name, you've got power over them. You, you, you know, you say somebody's speaking, no good. You say Philip, and they know they're in trouble. In the ancient, I, hope, I don't think there's any Philips with this point. But uh, oh, there is. Oh, yeah, of there is. It's a great start, isn't it? So often call you Phil. That's the problem. Or brother. Of course, you have a Philip. Philip. <laughs> Names have power, don't they? We know that that's involved. But here we'll give them a name that nobody knows. Nobody will be able to use their name in a curse. They'll be safe. So there's a real mixed bag going on there in Pergamum. What about Thyatira? Uh, verses 18 to 29. Let's have a quick read of that. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who, do, who have not learned what they call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, 
as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira is the central one of the seven churches, and it's also the longest one, and it's probably the most mixed one that we get. They're active, but they're negligent. On the one hand, they're commended for their works, their love, their faith, their service, their endurance. And unlike Ephesus, they're actually growing in these things. They're getting better at these things. But on the other hand, they're also, there are some of them following a false teacher. Some are following and the others are tolerating. They seem so loving, so accepting that actually they won't confront false teaching in their church. And that's a problem. The false teacher here, probably symbolically, is called Jezebel. Jezebel was an Old Testament queen who led the people into idolatry. Jezebel here calls herself a prophetess, probably teaching what she calls the deep things of God, which are parodied in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. In fact, she's teaching sexual immorality and idolatry. There were some at this time who we know uh, from church historians believed that the all things that the church had in common so often at this point included partners. And it's possible that that's what's going on here. They're warned in the strongest term that the bed where you commit adultery with her will become your sick bed if you don't repent. You're in for trouble and you're in for tribulation, says Jesus. The children that he threatens to kill are probably a symbolic reference to her followers. John speaks that way of people in 1 and 2 and 3 John. The rest in Thyatira are to hold fast. If they hold on, says Jesus, they will reign with Jesus. They'll be given the morning star, a reference to Christ in Revelation 22, 16. Christ will be theirs. They will reign with him. So that's what's promised for the church in Thyatira. Let's have a look at Sardis. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you know you will, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed us in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis is told that Christ is the one who has the Holy Spirit and the angels of the churches, the seven stars. And Sardis are a church on the brink. They look alive, but they're dead. They're a walking corpse, asleep on the job and about to die. Notice that they've got a good reputation, but it's just a show. They're not producing the works that they should have done and have been sullied by the world. And Christ has nothing good to say about them. How devastating is that? Nothing good to say about them. That said, there are a few in Sardis who aren't like the church as a whole. 
And Jesus promises that one day they'll be clothed in white. All who conquer will be clothed in white robes, washed in the blood of Christ, we'll find out later. Their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. It's like they've been written in in permanent ink. So solid is it there. And Christ will confess their name before his father. So there are some there. And then Philadelphia. Let's read that one together, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia is like the opposite of Sardis. Christ has nothing bad to say about them. They're like a rose between two thorns of Sardis and Laodicea. They're small, they're fragile, but they're keeping going. Despite opposition from non-believing Jews in the area, they've kept confessing Jesus. Even when the doors to the synagogue have been barred to them, they kept going. And Christ here is pictured as the key of David, holy and true, who really has keys to the most important door, the keys to glory, that no one can shut them out of. And they're told simply to hold fast, to keep going. God will spare them the trial ahead, Not ten days like Smyrna. God knows what his people can cope with. They're not going to get anything. And the promise is that one day they will be a pillar in God's temple, the church victorious. One day they will have God's name written on them. No one will be able to say that they're not his. And they'll have the name of his city written on them too. The representatives of the old Jerusalem may have blocked them out. But they belong to the new Jerusalem. That's what the Spirit has to say to the church in Philadelphia. And then lastly, everybody's favourite, Laodicea, who are lukewarm and blind. <clears throat> Let me read these to you. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love are reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ here is pictured as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, like Antipas who had been martyred uh, for his faith. And it's a stinging rebuke, really, if you think about it, because Laodicea are not really in danger of this, are they? Even though they're just up the road from Christians who are dying for their faith, in Laodicea they're living quite comfortably. They're the sort of meh church. They're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Again, not essential to our understanding, but Laodicea was a wealthy spa town. The Ilkley or the Harrogate, or Harrogate uh, of the province. It had a hot spring, and people would go there for healing. Well, let's say it was a hot spring, but it was a warm spring. It wasn't that great for heat, but it wasn't that pleasant to drink either, hence the imagery of that neither hot nor cold. It's like Jesus is saying, your faith is like your water, tepid, lukewarm, meh. But they thought they were doing quite well, and they were materially, but they were blind to their spiritual apathy and poverty. So Christ sets them straight. They're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Imagine saying that to someone from Ilkley or Harrogate, some of the millionaires who live there, you know, you're, you're pitiable, you're wretched, you're blind, you're naked. I imagine it probably had been received the same way uh, in Laodicea. What Jesus is saying, actually, for all your wealth and stuff, you need something from me, says Jesus. Gold, not the shiny stuff, real treasure, treasure in heaven. Nice clothes, not your Gucci and fat face, but white robes. Washed in the blood of Christ. Eye cream. Not knockoffs from M&S, but something that will open your eyes to the truth. Get back your zeal, says Jesus, and repent. I'm knocking, says Jesus, and if you heed my voice, I'll open up and we'll eat together. And eating with me is far better than eating at Betty's. And when we're done, you'll sit down with me on my throne, a real throne. Not the world's pretended thrones. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the overseer. But here's our last big question. It's way more brief in the middle section, don't worry. But here's the big question for the morning, the last point. Where are we? So we've gone through these churches, but where are we? Where am I? Where are you? After a passage like this, it's a good time to take stock. Some of us may be going through the mill at the moment. Facing trials, troubles, maybe even scorn and ridicule from others at work or at school. Like the churches in Smyrna or Philadelphia. Jesus is saying, keep going, despite those struggles. Keep going, that's the message that we need to hear. Hold fast to what we have. Now I can't tell you whether you'll be spared more trials like the church in Philadelphia, or whether you can expect more like the church in Smyrna. But either way, we must hold fast. Keep going. Keep that encouragement in mind. Those who conquer and keep his works until the end will be made pillars in the church, will have Christ's name written on them, will get the crown of life. If that's what you're going through, keep going, says Jesus. It's worth it. Some of you this morning may be finding things hard, and as a result, we've compromised, like the church in Pergamon. 
Things are hard, but we're holding on. But on the other hand, we've let things slip. We've let things slide morally and spiritually. We've compromised with the world and we've got ourselves into some difficult situations. Well, Jesus' message is simple. Repent. Repent. Turn around. Get out of that situation. Remember that Christ can give us all that we need. And that means it's okay if we miss out with things in the world. We've got food that Christ will give. We have tickets to a better party. We don't need the world's protection. Christ wants us to remember that. Maybe some of us feel like Ephesus or Thyatira. We're very busy, we're very active in church life. But being so discerning, we've lost our love for our brothers and sisters, like the Ephesians. Or being so loving and accepting, we've lost our discernment, like the Thyatirans. Both are dangerous in their own way. Both of those things need to be repented of, and both of them have hefty warnings. But both with great encouragements too. They're not beyond the pale. You can eat from the tree of life. You can reign with Christ if you'll just turn back. Some of us, I imagine, feel like the Laodiceans, lukewarm in our faith. Well, Christ would have us go back to him for what we need, for healing, for clothing in righteousness. He would have us be zealous again, to get a bit of fire in our bellies. That, that word for zeal is, is from the Greek word for heat. It's the idea of hotness. How? Repent, says Jesus. Wherever you're headed now, give up and turn around and go back after him with all the strength that you can muster. Open the door and dine with him. Do the things that make your heart warm to him. Do you have a favourite passage, one that moves you? Read it. Do you have a favourite hymn or a song that gets you deep down? Listen to it. Do you have a Christian who always points you to Jesus and just lifts you? Go meet them. Go invite them to stay. Don't go cold. Heat it up and one day you'll sit with Christ on his throne. Or lastly, Sardis. Maybe there are some of us who feel like Sardis. We've got a reputation for being alive, but deep down we know we've not done anything for God in years. We're living off past growth rather than having a living faith in the here and now. We look the part, but partly because we've played it for so long. But even for those who feel like that, who feel like there's nothing spiritually going on inside, there is hope. There is hope, says Jesus. What we need to do, though, is wake up, fess up, and repent. Remember what you've heard and keep it, says Jesus. If you do, Christ promises never to blot your name out of the book of life. He'll confess you before the Father. He who has a hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us as individuals. But where are we as a church? I think that's a really tough question. I've been trying to think it through this week. Part of the issue here is that most of these churches feel oblivious to their position, don't they? Self-diagnosis, as we said at the beginning, is actually quite hard. That's partly why God is speaking to them through John. And it's often easier, isn't it, to look at other churches and say, well, we know where that church is at, and we know where that church is at. But God wants us to examine ourselves. Where are we? And there are all sorts of questions that we need to be asking ourselves and the whole church as a body, not just the leaders, because the church is everyone, isn't it? Are we a church that's tolerating false teaching? Are we a church that's lapsing into immorality? Are we a church that loves one another more than we used to do? 
Are we a church that's remaining faithful under fire? Are we a church that is alive spiritually, or do we just have a reputation for being alive? Those are hard questions, aren't they? And we need the Spirit's help to help determine the answers. Whatever diagnosis, though, whatever we, when we think it through, whatever we seem to come to, we need to remember in all those cases, change is possible. Jesus warns here, but he always gives a way to change. And it's usually heart change, a culture change, a repentance by the church. Do you notice here, even the worst churches here, none of them are a lost cause. All churches have issues. What Jesus would bid us do is not just diagnose, but act. And the main action comes not in structures and systems, but in hearts. In our heart, in my heart, in your heart. So let's pray that as the week goes on this week, we think this over. Let's pray that God would give us insight into where he would have us change, both as individuals and as a church. And let's pray that God would give us the strength to change as we seek to to live out his will in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, there's been a lot to take in this morning. Father, there's lots in the passage that we've been looking at. Father, help us this week as we sift through that information. Father, speak to our hearts by your spirit. Help us to know where you would have us change. Help us to know where you would have us keep going. And help us to know as a church, Father, how we might honour and please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.